This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. This is a time some of you have heard before. Sick the reason why I'm chosen to have it tonight, so I will explain. This is um, a Norwegian, I think he's Norwegian, Scandinavian anyway, Una Ekloff. It's called Aya Asthma which evidently is a wish, and no, 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 not a wish, a healing, the cult of a healing well. Yeah, the cult of a healing well, by asthma. The black image, framed in silver, worn to shreds, by kisses. The black image framed in silver worn to shreds by kisses. All around the image the white silver worn to shreds by kisses. The very metal worn to shreds by kisses, framed in metal, the black image, worn to shreds by kisses. Oh, the darkness, the darkness in our eyes, worn to shreds by kisses. All we wished for Worn to shreds by kisses. All we never wished for, kissed and worn to shreds by kisses. All we escaped, worn to shreds by kisses. All we wished for, kissed again and again. So there's a particular story, it's not a very long story, behind that poem, or when I first heard that poem. And um, it relates to this little picture that I put up here. This is a picture of myself and uh, a very... uh, dear friend of mine called Savannah Prabha <coughs> and uh, it was taken on a retreat a Buddhist retreat a month long retreat in Devon in a field which I um, led with Savannah Prabha she, she's from um, she was from San Francisco and uh, probably mostly you know I spent uh, <coughs> little uh, eight years in San Francisco, um, came back about 13 years ago, I suppose now, but anyway, 
And she was one of my, one or probably my closest friend, really. Uh, perhaps other than the guy I went out there with. Um, she was a very close friend of mine in San Francisco. We kept in touch and um, we used to, when we could, uh, do retreats together because we so much enjoyed working together. And um, on that retreat, which was the first four years, four years ago now, I suppose. Is it four years I don't think it is, because Karma Shiva did it anyway, so it doesn't matter, but anyway, I think it must be nearly four. But anyway, on that, on that, on that retreat, um, she was about 48 at that time. And, um, she was bleeding a little bit from her vagina, and she didn't think anything of it, really. She thought, oh, I was uh, hitting the menopause. And, um, When she got back to uh, San Francisco, she went to a, to a gynecologist or whatever. Anyway, it, it, it turned out she had a extremely rare form of cancer, which evidently only, they only used to get like two or three cases a year of in the whole of North America. Very, very rare form of cancer. And, um, and she was diagnosed uh, of having stage three cancer. And um, she died uh, about two years later. And uh, before she died, uh, the year she died, it was last year she died. Uh, oddly enough, she died when I was doing the same retreat, uh, with a retreat, which we planned to do together. Obviously, she wasn't able to do it, and uh, it was quite an emotional thing for me, because I'd um, promised her I'd do it, um, I'd come over and do a funeral, but I'd also said, well, I'm in, in the middle of this month-long retreat, I don't know if I'd better come, or if we agreed that, but anyway, she died when I was on that retreat, but why I, why I, um, why she came to mind tonight was um, when I was thinking of transformation, I, I, was, I, I started to think, well, who do I know that I feel was really or did really transform themselves? And um, it was Savannah Bravo who came to my mind, actually, because... Um, even though before she got old, she, uh, before she got ill, sorry, before she got ill, she was already a very kind of um, remarkable woman in a way. In a, she was a very um, sort of creative woman, very big-hearted, very much from the heart, you know. Um, but she had quite a dark, depressive side to her, which she struggled with all of her life, actually. And they had various, you know, flirtations with drug use and depression and so on. But she also had this amazing, sort of, exuberant energy to her. But slightly sort of ungrounded in a way, slightly manic. She could be quite manic. <laughs> and, um, 
when she got ill, she stayed uh, in her community. She lived. Uh, we used to live together, not in a social centre. We lived in the same building for most of the time. I was in America, and that was above the centre, a bit like this. We had we had more room above the centre. <coughs> we had a small men's community that I lived in. Three, three other men, and she lived on the top floor. A couple of other women. There's about six of us six or seven of us depending living about the centre and we always had a lot to do with each other anyway um, she stayed in she stayed in her community in her community um, looked after I say looked after but the very interesting thing was actually she spent the last um two years of her life actually uh, looking after everybody around her and when I um, went out to see her, I think I went out in July and she died in September so she was still um, reasonably so healthy in a sense cancer by this time completely spread all over the body <coughs> but she was still um, able you know, to get out and get about but, and um, I don't know how to uh, say it without it sounding like cliche but she was just um Absolutely sort of radiant, not really kind of radiant, and um, something had just dropped away. And that whole sort of rather depressive stroke neurotic side of her I just um, dropped off and it was very interesting I mean I saw this myself people would come to see her you know and now just find themselves or end up just opening their hearts there. And uh, she just sort of in this, um, she was just in this kind of state of grace. quite a lot about to her about it you know we sort of talked about it we talked about that and about what, how she was finding it. and uh, she was just I mean obviously you know 
she had a difficult time doing that prayer, but on the whole, she was, as I say, just kind of completely open and radiant. With something, as I say, something let go of, let go of, and um, so it's a funny thing, really. I, you, you know, and I've seen this. I mean, in, in, I've already, I've already kind of familiar with this phenomenon. Because for six years I'd worked in a hospice when I was in San Francisco. I mean, I just worked there one day a week as a volunteer in the uh, Zen hospice and I'd seen it quite often with people near death but I'd never seen it over such a kind of protracted period you know. and um, from a from a Buddhist uh, perspective of course I don't really want to interpret it but you know the obvious, the obvious thing that's happened when people accept that they're going to die if they if they manage because I've also seen people not accept that they're going to die and uh, in when they are dying you know clinging on and becoming more and more kind of clenched and tight but actually uh it offers a possibility of, of this kind of letting go, you know, offers this possibility of no longer needing to hold on to this sort of constructed self, I suppose, you know, if you put it in Buddhist terms. You know. And uh, so I was thinking about that, then I started to think, well, what, what in my own life has been uh, the most kind of transformative experiences of my own life. I mean, obviously there's been various transformative experiences as one goes through life, but... Settle down at the back there. Right? <laughs> uh, I think of what has been the most transformative experience of my life. And I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is true, but in recent years, at least, in recent years, at least, and with actually a history running through the whole of my life, as uh, the most transformative thing for me has been uh, a process of I'm involved with of going blind. And um, and this made me start to think. Actually, we can we very often think about kind of transformation. And I think this is totally legitimate. Yeah? We, we might think about transformation as kind of uh, improving things or perfecting things or as a sort of gaining. You know, and I, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't want to sort of rule that out. I just want, I just want to um, suggest there's another way of understanding this process of transformation, and uh, in this sense, it's a, it's a process of becoming more and more comfortable, or 
at home with your own vulnerability. <coughs> yeah. I think, I think for me, this has become um, how I understand uh, what I'm involved in. Really, is this process of trying to open up. my own uh, vulnerability and I say this is um, this thread of um, my eyesight has run through the whole of my life because even as a young boy I was poorly sighted so when I went to school I don't really remember it at primary school so much though I do have this memory of uh, some period wearing a patch over one eye the attempt to try and get the other eye to function. Um, but I do remember, you know, all through my, particularly my, uh, particularly more as I got towards puberty, I think more. I was a very, um, as a young kid, I was quite um, physical, robust, um, physical sort of kid, you know, and. Uh, as my eyesight kind of deteriorated, and I, you know, I was wearing these really thick lenses, glasses, you know, and um, that sort of side of me, in a way, um, well, I, you know, I, I became less than able to sort of participate in sport. You know. um, so it sort of had quite a profound effect on my personality, but what I remember about it most strikingly at some point, and as I say, I suspect this was around puberty, but maybe a particular associated with sort of going to secondary school, so that'd be about 11. And what I remember about it most was this uh, sort of sense of shame that... Um, I started to have around it, yeah, and this um, kind of compensation, you know, this, this way of trying to, in a way, trying to um, ignore it or comp- I can't really explain, but I would get I would get extremely embarrassed if anything about eyesight was ever kind of mentioned or you know, I feel this kind of. Well, I think I don't know what other words to use. <coughs> But shame, really, and that actually for a lot of my life, a lot of my adult life, in one way or other, I've tried to kind of hide it or compensate for it. And um, loads of you are here on, on Sangha uh, Day, but whenever it was, and I was, I was talking a little bit about Adler, of course. I didn't really go into this aspect of Adler, but Adler's whole um, sort of theory of psyche is that the, the, the sense of self forms around what he called organ inferiority. It's that some aspect of yourself which is vulnerable, where you you experience your vulnerability, the self kind of forms around that to try and protect it. Find this a very uh, interesting um, way of looking at formation of self, or some aspects of the formation of self. Anyway, maybe it doesn't account for everything. I don't know, but um, in in uh, Adler's view, the, the inferiority 
often leads to a kind of overcompensation with the uh, superiority complex. Anyway, that's a bit by the by, but um, I suppose um, at some point something changed in me, and I don't really know when this was. It wasn't like a unique moment or anything. It was just a gradual process of... Uh, which I feel I'm still very much involved with. It's not that complete. But this sort of gradual process is kind of opening into... Or, um, softening into actually how I was, you know, or how I am, you know. and um, my experience of that. I suppose uh, my experience of that is uh, that the more I'm able to do that, the more uh, kind of connected I feel both with myself, but also kind of with the world, you know. Mm-hmm. But somehow this softening into what's vulnerable in us, what we might kind of be living our life to compensate or hide or think we need to get rid of or, you know, it's what, what's, it's the sort of unwanted in us, the despised or the shameful, however you want to put it. Uh, a lot of our, I think a lot of what we do in life is this, this attempt to kind of compensate for that, but I think there's a different way of being in the world, and it's a way of vulnerability, or of um, allowing oneself to um, fill into and come into relationship with it. And um, just as with Savannah Prabhupada, you know, in a way, I know, I know she's talking to her at those last two years of her life. Were the happiest years of her life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's fair enough to say. And, um, and it was because you know she'd accepted something. You know she'd accepted her, her basic vulnerability, which is of course death. You know, which of course we all share. We all share that. You know. And. Uh, but I think there's a transformation, you know, transformation to be had by by softening into our impermanence, if you like, if you want to put it in that kind of Buddhist terms, you know, a softening into what's vulnerable in us, which is us, you know, we are, we are by nature finite and uh, vulnerable. And uh, softening into that allows something to open. You know. um, yes. So they were two of the things that occurred to me. Three other. They occurred to me just this, this evening. Uh, the three things, the three other things that I mentioned that are slightly more um, fanciful. When I first started, um, when I first got all transformation, there were three things that came to my mind initially. The first one was um, Blue Reads, I think it was 1973 album, Transformer. So just, just, just word association really, but 
Well, I thought I'm a bit inclined to do this if, if a kind of image. I mean, kind of sort of an image, if you like, but this is uh, so that people remember that. I'm sure you, it was a huge album at the time, wasn't it? Um, produced by David Bowie, who, interestingly enough, has been um, hugely influenced by Lou Reed earlier. Lou Reed's work well underground so it's kind of this kind of reflection between the two. So Barry was very influenced by Lou Reed, and then and Barry then uh, went and produced that album in Ronson. You know, Nick Ronson, the guitarist of the Spiders from Mars, or whoever they were called at the time, um, also played a huge part in that. Uh, Lou Reed album, he plays guitar, keyboards, backing by the did his did his string arrangement for Perfect Day and on and on. So Barry and Robson together I had a huge input in that album. But well as I think about it, I thought one of the interesting things about that album, and I remember that album coming out and you know really, and it was a particular time in uh, pop music and what what was going on at that time was this kind of um, There was a lot of uh, gender bending at that time. The barrier, well, uh, uh, um, before that, brought out Hunky Dory, which people remember that album. But anyway, you know, Barry was very into this kind of ambiguous, more of a hermaphrodite kind of sexuality, you know. And uh, Louis um, um, in Transformers kind of had that um, had that thing going on, you know. I had it going on a little bit in, in the Velvet in a way, but it came out a lot more fully in that Louis album, which was very a game of what you know. Very, um, your genders were, were being very bent. I don't know how else to put it. Over. And I thought, well, this is quite an interesting thing because I think one one of the other things we um, we identify with, either negatively or positively, some of us identify with kind of in a, in a kind of negative way or positive way, is our sexuality, you know, and in particular um, whether we're masculine or feminine. This is like a basic a kind of dualism. And in a sense, you can see it as a stand for all dualism, you know. It's this basic dualistic um, idea of being masculine or feminine. And uh, I think, well, this is quite an interesting way of understanding transformation as well, is that realising in a way that though you happen to have a, you happen to be born female or male, Actually, in a way, you possess those other qualities as well. You possess those opposite qualities. And um, I think for, for us, on one, one of the, the ways we can understand what we're trying to do spiritually, to use that word, is to try and um, break down that kind of dualism in ourselves. And uh, say, I think a lot of our idea, our construction of self is around gender and sexuality, that uh, I think uh, just 
Yeah, trying, trying, trying to allow, trying to allow whatever's hidden. Again, it's this idea of what's been hidden, really. So I think, you know, quite often, uh, sort of, um, you know, we're quite, we, we're not, we're not really in touch with either, you know, if we're male, we're not necessarily in touch with the qualities of the feminine, and if we're female, we're not necessarily in touch with qualities of the masculine and somehow um, <coughs> they, they, there's this sort of uh, tension uh, I think in a lot of people you know but I haven't uh, quite come into themselves fully sort of over sort of over one sided you know. so anyway I was just thinking about that album and the next image that came to mind after were those little um, and actually you probably got to be a man to well, that's a terrible thing. So, I mean, actually, you probably got to be a man of a certain age to really have a have a. Um, I was going to say erotic relationship with this, but I don't know why I'm using the word erotic. But so when uh, I was young, you don't really get them anymore. If you had a train set, electric train set. Or or a scale electric, you remember scale, some of you remember scale electric. <coughs> you, you also had a little grey metal box with silver terminals on them, which was transformers. You know. And uh, of course, transformers, what a transformer does is, is to step up or down the voltage. You know, either, right? um, in the case of scale electric, Stepped it down, but anyway, so it changes the, the voltage. And I thought, well, this is quite a, this is quite an interesting image as well, in a way. Um, and it relates a little bit to what I was saying in the shrine before we meditated, you know. Um, <coughs> and I think uh, this this idea that um, energy can be transformed. I quite like this as an idea. I like the idea that. Um, situations have a certain energy uh, like cities London as a city has a very different energy from if you go out into the countryside or if you go to a small town they have a different kind of vibe to them they have a kind of different energy to them and uh, one of um, the problems we have I think about in our lives is that sometimes our energy quality of our energy or the rhythm of our energy and the tempo of our this is somehow out of in it's not in accord with where we are or the people or with or the place we're with and uh, I don't really I don't know really where to go with this other than to say that I think it's quite important that um, we start to have a kind of intimacy with the different qualities of energy that we can have and we try and actually find a way of being that's appropriate to the situation because otherwise we're always in conflict with it yeah? So we find, you know, we find London oppressive or too busy or da-da-da. 
And it is like somehow we need to find a way of matching our energy. We can't expect the world to match up. I was particularly... Oh, no, I won't go down that route. (laughs) 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 That would be be a rant in in a of second second image and I know there's one more image which just just this moment which has gone completely out of my head <coughs> but it will come back in a minute um, <coughs> no it's gone completely <laughs> it's gone completely out of my head sorry I can't remember what the third one was I had three the third one completely gone Oh, well, never mind, eh? Never mind, I'll come back. Anyway, I think that's all I've got to say, really. So, um, well, I'll just kind of leave it there. And I thought, well, be no, you know, we could just have a bit of a, a chat, perhaps, around some of the things I've said. But, uh, see, I see how you respond to it, yeah. And if I remember the third one, I'll, I'll bring it in later. Mm-hmm. This isn't what I was, this isn't what I was going to say, but I did also want to say, and I don't know why I feel, I feel so compelled nearly. This has become a bit of an obsession with me lately for some reason. This, I, this idea of icon. I'm very, and that poem is presumably about an icon, you know, a, you know, if you go to Greece or any of these orthodox countries, you know, Christian Orthodox countries, so very often the icons are framed in that very um, light silver, yeah, you know what I mean, it's almost tinny, isn't it? And, uh, and um, I've spent over the years now, and then I've gone to Skiros quite a bit, and, and sorry, Sifnos quite a bit, and uh, Sifnos, um, one of the Greek islands, and it's um, it's famous, but it's quite a small island, a beautiful island. And, uh, it's famous for having a church for every day of the year. And the whole life of this island is still quite undeveloped, but the whole life of this island is around icons. All the festivals uh, seem to be around moving icons from one place, usually by boat, one place on the island, another place on the island, and uh, it's, a, it's a great honour to have these icons in these churches, but they also have these icons of people who have uh, been at home for a year, and it's a great honour, you know, um, to be given an icon, to have one of these special icons to have in your home for a year. Um, and I don't know if people know this, but the... Um, I don't know if this is going to tie in with anything you were saying here, but I think it will tie in now. I don't know if I can make it connect, but in my mind it ties in. Yeah. Uh, one of the main, um, perhaps even it's fair to say, the, the main uh, theological um, rupture between the 
Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, was was around icons. So the Orthodox Church, the Greek and Russian Orthodox Church, they say that um, God or the Divine, the Holy Spirit, is in the icon. It's in the icon, and the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't have this. And they said, no, it's just pointing towards the divine, you know, it's just the, the, the Orthodox Church insists that it's in, actually in the icon. And what this meant, when the, what this meant was that in the Orthodox Church you've got direct access to the divine. Yeah. It doesn't have to be mediated by a priest or a religious, you know, religious, you've just got this image. And in the actual image is God. Yeah, in the actual image is God. And um, I suppose it. I suppose it relates to what I'm saying in a way because um, I feel one of the basic movements of the psyche, if we can use that word, the psyche or the self, is, 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 is to start to um, realise that. The self is in everything. So we don't have a God in Buddhism. We don't have a creator God anyway. So you can't have God in everything, but you can have um, (coughs) consciousness in everything. So I think one of the shifts, which um, somehow to me has got some relation to this, and I'm not, I don't think I'm going to attempt to explain why, but for me it's got some relationship to this idea of vulnerability to make oneself vulnerable to make this to sort of open yourself up to the, the world you know um, as it is and but it also seems to me to be somehow to recognize that the world is um, is alive yeah it's not a dead world yeah? it's, it's an alive world so it's not only other people and animals things that are obviously alive but everything in the in the world becomes icon in this sense so the world becomes iconic you know you, you live in this you live in this world which is alive and it's alive in the same way that you're alive in you know, so the, the separation this kind of hard held self the way we kind of hold ourselves off from life or hold ourselves away from life in some sense in a sort of desperate attempt to um, well what is what is it a desperate attempt to do I don't know hold on to ourselves I don't know but that starts to kind of waver it starts to kind of um, that distinction starts to sort of evaporate in a uh, yourself is not any longer something which is self-contained it's not some kind of kernel or hardness in you but it becomes dispersed in everything yeah. it's somehow the, the self is this is um, in uh, Buddhism there's the the mind only school, consciousness only school of Buddhism, which developed in China. And um, 
And Dogus, that's something, doesn't need the uh, um, self. The self is, is in the mountains, in the river, in the trees. He puts it rather better than that, but, you know, so this idea that self is somehow in everything, you know, it's a bit like this uh, the idea of the divine, but we're not going to use the word divine. We're not allowed to use that word. So consciousness, call it mind or consciousness, is that somehow, and that the whole, another way of understanding this perhaps is, um, to understand that the whole world, everything arises in you all the time. Yeah. Everything, everything that you are ever. I mean, it, it's, it's like in the end, these things are so trite in a sense because it's, it's entirely obvious that everything you've ever experienced, everything you're ever going to experience, arises in your mind. But when you think about that from a certain perspective, it means that the whole world, if I say Australia, that's arisen in your mind. Or when you go out in the street, that's arising in your mind. Everything's arising in consciousness. So everything's arising in you all the time. And uh, the colliery of that being, of course, you are arising all the time in the world. Just as the world is arising or co-arising all the time in you. you know. So this is, um, so I suppose um, what, what I'm trying to say is, I mean, again, we all know this, but, you know, the basic transformation, the basic transformation in Buddhism is, is not enough, it's not to uh, accumulate anything or gain anything but it's uh, allowing something to dissipate or drop off or fall away. And uh, what what is being allowed to fall away is this kind of protective shell of self. Just to allow it to fall away and just find yourself in this uh, very um, open, joyful but at the same time vulnerable place and that only falls away I think when um, you do come into relationship with with, with your your nature you know, your true nature and, uh, from a Buddhist point of view of course this is most easily done through um, coming into your impermanent nature. This is your true nature, your impermanence, and a fragile, vulnerable, temporary, nothing fixed in you, and there's a way of uh, softening into that. So there's no, it's not a transformation uh, into something, it's a transformation in the sense of it's a letting go or a softening or opening or something, I suppose. So, um, anyway, so I leave, I leave now. I still haven't, I thought I might have fought on the third image, I still haven't, I'm afraid. I don't have to do it about that one. Okay, I, I'm going to shut up now. We'll see if any of you have got anything.
to say. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 